morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. If you've listened to this show before, you know that at Jew in the City, we reverse negative associations about Orthodox Jews. And we've done a lot of profiles over the years with Orthodox Jews who have out-of-the-box hobbies or careers or involved in different types of um, acts of kindness. Um, the other part of our mission in our organization, because we are an organization, is that we want to show that living as an Orthodox Jew can be a meaningful way to live and it can be an engaging way to live, that it comes with us in the 21st century. And this is something I would say that we've profiled less on this show because it's maybe a harder thing to do an interview about. How do we show that you know there's a, a meaningful life um, in a life of faith? But we actually have an incredible author with us today who has kind of made it um, maybe his life's mission to grapple with how to deal with faith in modern times, what faith can offer a modern person, and look to confront the ar argument that atheists make and what are some you know, possible answers or replies that we could give to them. And so we're delighted to welcome Scott A. Shea to our uh, show today. He's a leading businessman and thought leader and author of two widely read books. Scott co-founded Signature Bank in 2001. The bank has become one of the best banks in New York for private business owners. His second book, in Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism has been recognized as one of the best books of 2008 by Mosaic authors and earned a finalist award from National Jewish Books. Scott gives talks around the country and is interviewed on TV, radio, and podcasts many times throughout the year. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Allison, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, sure. Our pleasure. So if you could um, start us off with a little bit of your background, you know, kind of um, where did you grow up? How did you grow up? Um, and kind of include, I guess, the, the Jewish foundation in that part. Sure. I grew up in East Rogers Park in New York, not the more famously Jewish West Rogers Park, but the working class area in a working class area in Chicago. And I had a, I had an interesting Jewish upbringing, upbringing in that my father was a Holocaust survivor. So in 1941, when the Nazis invaded his town of Svexno, Lithuania. His father was killed, his brothers were killed, his aunts and uncles, his, most of his cousins were killed. And my father was sent to a work camp um, in Lithuania, Svetlenin work camp, Svetlenin Heidekraig work camp. And then he ultimately ended up being deported, being sent to Auschwitz, where he was there for three months. And then in a certain kind of ironic way, he was fortunate enough, and I use that in a very ironic way, to be sent to Warsaw to clean up after the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and after other events. And then he was sent to Dachau. And there he was liberated by the Americans and he made his way to Chicago because he was sponsored by a doctor in Chicago, Dr. Julius Mayer. And he built a life. He had a son. He married, had a son. And my father went through life with a very complicated relationship with God in that he was absolutely certain that there was a God. Because if he had been one step forward, one step back, one step sideways, if that 
painting behind you. Instead of as I'm viewing it, it's on your right. If instead it was on your left, he would have been dead. He would have been murdered. There were so many little tiny things that got him from Spexon, Lithuania to Chicago to being able to have a family again that he, he knew that wasn't an accident. It couldn't have been an accident. It was too unlikely. At the same time, while being grateful for that miracle, he was angry that his brother, his aunts, his uncles, his cousins, et cetera, his mother had died in childbirth prior to the war. They were all murdered. And so I grew up with that central conundrum of how does a good God let there be such evil on earth? And, and that, so that was very central to my growing up. So tell us about sort of the journey of reconciliation, because you weren't raised to be an atheist, you were raised to be a believer, but a believer with complicated feelings around God. So this eventually, you eventually got to a place of becoming an observant Jew. Um, so tell us a little bit about like the process of reconciling your father's negative feelings about God to coming to a positive place. And also, um, you know, what you would say um, Judaism's, Judaism's initial goal was of, of coming into the world. Like what was the purpose of, of Jews that you discovered as you embraced your, your Jewish heritage? Well, so I, you know, I think these are all, I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to create dichotomies of positive and negative mm -hmm. because I think belief is partially embracing the wholeness of God. And it's not always, it's not always so great. I mean, our calendar, our calendar, our calendar includes holidays like Passover, which are very happy, mm -hmm. but it also includes Tisha B'Av. It also includes uh, a whole host of fast days. Uh, you know, everything from various stages of the temple being destroyed to so Gedalia, the last governor of, of Judea, being assassinated. So there's definitely always the good and the bad. And the, mm -hmm. the blessing that the first blessing after Boruchu is, is, is really that we bless God. God is behind everything. Light, darkness. So I, I can't say that we in coming to belief that we need to just say everything's happy and you know onward and forward so it's i think it's more complicated than that but what i, I have did, a better word is is it possible to say that when your father was angry he disconnected himself with god and what you attempted to do then was to lean in to form a relationship with this complicated being and this complicated state called faith is that maybe a better way to say it well i'd say this and I, and I said this in my book, which is that, and, and I've heard this from other survivors and other survivors' children as well, which is that it wasn't so much that my father had a negative attitude for God. It's that he gave God the silent treatment. So when my father went to Shul in a traditional, which was a sort of a conservadox, synagogue in Chicago, Beth Shalom, Congregation Beth Shalom. I mean, he would do what other survivors did. And it took me a while to figure this out. And other people have noticed this as well. So when the 
when the service was going on, he'd be chatting with the person next to him. And when the rabbi would give his sermon, he would doze off. And when it got to Musaf, he would go back and have schnapps with his friends. So he would do everything but actually talk to God. It was important for him, and the community was important for him. And by showing up, he was also making a statement, a statement to himself and a statement to God. But he wasn't going to give God the courtesy of talking to him after he had allowed his father, his own father, to be murdered just about in front of him. So it's complicated, and I think we have to recognize and embrace that. I think that what, but I'm going to lean. I'm going to lean into your next question then, because that made me think a lot about how we can believe in an all good God, given the, all we have to do is look around us. And and that's been my, to a certain degree, a part of my life journey in terms of thinking about that issue. And as I, I said to you in, in the pre-interview, uh, I've had the pleasure during and privilege during this, during the book tour, and particularly before the book tour sort of ended in person events, to talk to a lot of atheists, a lot of non-believers. And I've really found, my book tries to answer the question of why it's rational to believe in God. And I think that's a very pressing question. And I talk to a lot of non-believers, and believers as well, who are, can't quite figure out why they believe, and don't know if it's rational, and think maybe they've just parked their, their brains at the door, but yet they believe in their kishkas, whether they're Christians or Jews. But the hardest question that religious that believers have to answer is how God lets such evil in the world. How God lets volcanoes and tsunamis and natural disasters. These are very difficult questions. And I think the other questions are actually easier questions. About you know God and science and like I think that we have to deal with them, but I don't think they're quite as difficult. One question that I dealt with, and I and I find many people grapple with, is why Judaism? As Richard Dawkins says, well, there used to be idolatry with lots of gods, and then the monotheists brought that down to one god, but it's all just directionally correct till we get down to zero gods, because there is no god. So what is it about monotheism? What is it that differentiates it about idolatry? Because that's what Judaism and that's what the Bible really came to do. We're, we're coming up to the holiday of Passover. I don't know exactly when this is going to be aired, but at Passover, we celebrate essentially a victory over idolatry. And this is what people don't get. And I'd like to, I'd, if your listeners take one thing away, I'd like them to remember this. Idolatry isn't some quaint bowing down to idols. Idolatry is much worse. Idolatry is a set of lies about power. It's about ascribing super authority or superpowers to finite beings, i.e. people like you and me or others, to ideologies, to natural processes. In the ancient world, animals, some animals, but not so much anymore. Pharaoh used 
the tropes of poetry, power, pageantry, all, of course, backed up by secret police and an army of informers and a very strong army to enforce his ways. Because what Pharaoh said was truth. Actually, you have that in several of the, of the encounters. Pharaoh thinks that whatever comes out of his mouth is truth. So we think, okay, it's Passover. We defeated Pharaoh. God defeated Pharaoh. Great. If that was 3,300 years ago. Let's move on. But in reality, the whole 20th century, and unfortunately the 21st century, is becoming an unfolding of modern-day pharaohs. How did Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, the Assad family, the Kim family, Hitler, get away with what they did? How did Stalin kill all the kulaks, starve a quarter of the Ukraine, and send tens of millions of people to the gulag? Because they used the same tropes as the ancient pharaoh. What Stalin said was truth. If he said to kill people, he said to murder people, you murder them. He said, send this whole group to the gulag. They were sent to the gulag. Mao famously, Mao was responsible for that to 75 million Chinese people. He famously, well, he's ascribed famously to have said that if 300 million people would have been killed, to ensure the success of the Chinese Communist Party, that would have been okay. The Bible came to say these God King Pharaohs are furnished. They're, they're not good. This is a set of lies about power. We need to identify truth. And, and that was a revolution. It was an utter revolution. So it's not only, and I just want to say one more thing. I know I'm going on a little bit here, but it's not only about macro events, but it's also about micro events. How did Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, Harvey Weinstein, um, the list goes on and on. Unfortunately, it's a sad and long list. How did they get away with what they got away with? Because they they successfully set themselves up as idols. What Charlie Rose said at CBS was unquestioned and unquestionable. What he said was truth. What an accuser said was definitionally false. So it was only once enough women came, enough, there was enough, and and, and look, Harvey Weinstein also abused some men, but it was only enough, although mostly women, but it was only once there was a critical mass who was willing to call out truth that these idols were overturned. So it's not only the macro level that we see idolatry, but it's actually in our most intimate encounters. Fascinating. I know that something that we spoke about before was sort of there's a certain amount of idolatry sometimes in atheists that you said that you don't believe that faith can be proven, but you also don't believe that faith can be disproven, but that sometimes people take on atheism as sort of its own form of idolatry. Is that something that you can speak about? Sure. So this is something I've, I, I've definitely seen, and I've actually seen it even more since I wrote the book, which is that, well, first of all, let's just start with where we did. Communism was theoretically, an, they were all, they're atheist ideologies. But yet the ideology itself took on an idolatrous religion. Many atheists, if you talk to them, 
it's not that they don't believe in God per se. They often believe in a different God, an ideology. I mean, even the science. Look, I believe in science. Science is a process. Science is a process when it's done correctly, and I think it came out of monotheism a certain way because it's a process of constantly checking for the truth. But if you believe that there's something called the science and it can answer questions that it can't answer, well, that's turning science into a sort of idolatry because it's it's giving it's it's asserting that science can say certain truths when it can't. And people tend to make it up. I love when science is really engaged with. I hate it when science, when the science is used as a rhetorical device, again, to get people to do stuff, whatever it is. It should be based on actual evidence. And I think there's a lot of it. Look, I'm not, I'm a pro-vaxxer. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I believe in wearing a mask. I mean, I'm not wearing it, obviously, as I'm sitting in my own office. I believe in that because that's what, that's what science says from analytical uh from an analytical perspective i like antibiotics and anesthesia i'm glad we have them but saying that science says that there is no god is absolutely bunk there is no proof from science that there isn't a god and as a matter of fact what i show in my book is that i think the evidence is more so that god is really the occam's razor i mean the way that science is touted to disprove God or primarily come down to two issues, which I deal with in my book in great detail, which is this idea that we just happen to be one universe in the multiverse or maybe the Marvel comic multiverse, who knows, but um, that there are many, many multiverses. Well, that's great, but no one's ever seen another multiverse. It's just a mathematical construct. So you can't say science disproves that God created the universe. It, it just doesn't, it's not there. It, it's turning science into a totem. And that's really dangerous. That's definitely a fascinating perspective. Can you tell us about some of the feedback that you've gotten from your book, uh, both from believers and atheists? Well, that's actually quite interesting because I've gotten uh, a ton of feedback uh, and that's been good. That's what you want on a book tour. Uh, so 80% of my public appearances have probably been to Christian audiences. Uh, and my book is written about belief as opposed to what sort of specific belief. And I think it's been well received. I've been at everywhere from Greek Orthodox to some of the most liberal Christian denominations. And people may disagree. Some people will want me to say that uh, the Bible is just some made up stories and I'm a clearly a defender of the Bible. Uh, and I, as I say, I'm not one of those folks. I'm not coming to say, well, the Hebrew scriptures uh, were super, you know, I can explain away things because now we have these nice new, new scriptures. Um, I really have to defend and I do the Hebrew scriptures as the so-called Old Testament. I've found that people really, really are interested in talking about this because there's just such a deluge of anti-God books that people are looking 
for answers. That's one of the reasons why I structured the book where if you don't want to read the whole thing, and I hope people do, but you can look up all, you know, what, what, it, what, what a specific issue, sort of all the things we don't want to talk about. What is, what does the Bible say about slavery? What does it say about genocide? What does it say about, um, uh, uh, treatment of women? Um, because there's a lot of slanders thrown against the Bible. I mean, Richard Dawkins says something to the effect, I might barely misquote him, but he says the Bible is the most homophobic, xenophobic, racist, sexist, pro-rape, pro-slavery screed ever written. And that's, oh. <laughs> you know, so, and I get people who ask me questions like that. The most vociferous responses I get are clearly from atheists who really, and that's where I've learned that sort of atheism to a certain degree, and some atheists have turned atheism into its own religion mm -hmm. because they really throw up at the idea that people can believe in God. One atheist has written that believers should be put in cages because they're dangerous to other people. That's the sort of turning atheism into a religion that I was talking about. And fundamentally, what I try to tell people and what is one of my fundamental me messages is that the Bible came at its core to talk about idolatry and also in there talk about not self-deifying, not deifying anybody means not deifying Pharaoh, but it also means not deifying ourselves. And the way you boil that down is to say, don't do unto someone else what you don't want done unto you. That's the way that Hillel famously summarized the entire Bible. And I think that can really be the bridge between believers and not believers. Because if, 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 a, if an atheist can sign on to the golden rule, then I can make common cause morally and in action with, with, with an atheist who, who subscribes to the golden rule that maybe he or she won't think that we all share a, um, a common spark of divinity like B'Tselem Elohim, but at least we share a common spark of humanity. Mm -hmm. Many atheists and all, all of the people that I just finished the point who think that ideology is more important don't believe that they share a common spark. I mean, Stalin wouldn't have wanted to send himself to the gulag. He wouldn't have wanted himself starved. He wouldn't have wanted to have himself killed. And despots essentially self-deify themselves. So they don't, or are people. They don't actually subscribe to that golden rule. And that has been the way I try to bridge these conversations because some of the conversations with atheists actually are quite heated in terms mm -hmm. of just, they get very upset. Yeah. I loved, you told me that there was some comment that was something like you made me doubt my atheism. Did I get the quote right? No, not exactly, but close. He said, one person said, at least you, you made me have doubts about my doubts. Uh-huh, got it. I love that. I think that that's really, um, you know, to not, on one hand, to not say that you can prove faith, but on the other hand, to say that uh, you can't unprove faith either. Um, 
really opens up anybody to the possibility um, of believing. Now, another point that we touched on, you were involved in a population study. There is a high rate of non-believers amongst the Jewish population. You said you're speaking mostly to Christians. Yep. Why do you think that is that we have so many non-believers within our own community? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So I was chair of the New York Jewish population study uh, and it was, it was a surprising study to me in many ways. There's currently a new one going on. One is done just about once every decade. But what's interesting is that if you ask Christian, if you ask the general population, do you believe in God? At what sort of level? They'll say about 60% will say that they're sure there's a God. About 20% will say they think there's a God. And 20% are the so-called nuns. They'll either be New Agey, they might be atheists, they might be agnostics. When you get to Jews, you, you don't really make it to the, to 40% really feel certain there's a God. You know, unlike my father was absolutely certain. He would have answered that poll, yes. I'm angry at him, but yes. And then you've got maybe 20%-ish, 20, 25% of people who think that there, excuse me, might, that they think that there's a God. They think there might be a God. But you have a lot of Jews who really don't believe in God. And I think that's because to a certain degree of many Jews being raised with sort of a uh, heavy secular view and, and, viewing, and viewing religion as a little bit the enemy. Um, I, I've met Jews who told me, you know, why do you believe that it's important that the Jewish people carry on? I mean, isn't that all just Seinfeld and Chinese food on New Year's Eve and it's in bagels and locks and it's all really good, but no need to propagate it. There'll be something else that'll come up and this is all just a, a silly waste of time. You know, do something more, more useful with your, with your discretionary free time. And I've had people say that. I think there's no question that Jewish education has failed in many cases, certainly it's failed among the majority of the non-Orthodox arena. Mm -hmm. um, I, went to, to, I went to Hebrew school, and if you would have given me a choice between going to Hebrew school and eating a Bible, <laughs> just chewing it down, I probably would have chewed it down and at least said, okay, I'm done with that. I mean, for many, unfortunately, Hebrew school in the past, and I think they're in my my wife and I are among those trying to reinvent Hebrew school. Uh, but in the past, it, 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 it was only served to, for Jewish children to realize that they had to learn a certain portion. And then for one day, they were a display piece for their parents. And then they could move on to other stuff and quit Hebrew school. It was absolutely the wrong way to inculcate any sort of Jewish identity, any sort of notion that we're, is a link between Abraham and Sarah and people today and Jews today. Any way to say that we have a mission on this planet to, 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 to be a light unto the nations, to do things that are important and to fight against idolatry. 
So we, we're just about out of time. We're just about out of time. I want to just plug your book one more time. And then if you have sort of like one closing thought about, you know, sort of what, what your message is on faith or people struggling or why they should engage it. Just want to say that you are the author of In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism. You can visit scottshay.com and find the book wherever. Books are sold, I'm sure. But just sort of a closing thought in our last 20 seconds um, on, yep. on your topic. Yeah. Belief can change everything in one's life. And I think that it can center people, give people meaning. And I think just the journey to determine belief is one that is extraordinarily worthwhile. And I encourage everyone to go on that journey. That's what I did. Amazing. Well, we're so happy that you shared your journey with the world and that there is this cogent place to answer so many of these questions that thinking people have to face. Um, and we wish you continued Hatzlacha with, uh, with teaching and educating and illuminating. Thank you, Allison, for having me. Hatzlacha gam lach. Thank you. And thanks for listening. You can catch us same time, same place next week.